the book of Romans, chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul here calls on the church at Rome. He's writing this letter to a specific local church body. He says to them, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is all built on the previous 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Really, this text is answering the question, how does the gospel affect life in the church of Jesus Christ? Because the first 11 chapters go through this glorious exposition of the gospel. Chapters 1 through 3 focus on the fact that all men are condemned. Paul talks about the Jews being condemned. He talks about the Gentiles being condemned. He talks about those who are disobedient being condemned. And those who try to follow the law are condemned. And he reaches this conclusion in chapter 3 that there is none righteous. No, not one. But then at the end of chapter 3, that bad news comes to a head when we find out that Jesus is the one who is righteous for us. Jesus is the one who gave his life to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus is the one who justifies us. Chapter 4 through 5, continue to expound on that idea of justifying faith, looking to the Old Testament, looking to Abraham. Chapters 5 and 6 talk about being dead to sin and alive to God. That because we are united with Christ who is buried and rose again, we die with him and we raise again with him. We rise again with him. Chapter 7 declares us free from the law. Chapter 8 talks about us being alive, talks about us being adopted, talks about us being beloved. We are loved by our Father. Chapter 9 through 11 talk about election. Talk about the fact that Jesus has saved us not because of our own merit, but because of his purposes. And so we get to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is the culmination of this glorious gospel message. The book of Romans has a couple of purposes. Both at the beginning and the end of the book, Paul talks about wanting to work the obedience of faith. So that we who have faith then work out that faith in obedience. What's that going to look like? Uh, Romans uh, serves as almost a missionary letter, as Paul writing to the church at Rome to gain their support for his future missions, as he talks about in the last couple of chapters. But he is focused on not merely expounding the theological truths of the gospel, which are certainly important, certainly why we turn to Romans most often, 
but not only is he expounding theological truths, he's then moving on and says, therefore, here in chapter 12, I appeal to you. I urge you, maybe even as strong as I command you, brothers. Therefore, because of what has been because of the glorious truths of the gospel, that we are enemies of God, but Jesus is righteous and holy and perfect, and he dies and he reconciles God's enemies to adoption as beloved sons. This glorious truth then ends with a big, so what? Interesting facts. What difference does it make? And the Apostle Paul says, therefore, because of the gospel, by the mercies of God, looking at the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're familiar with the concept of sacrifice. We're, we're familiar with it in our, in our natural lives as well. We make sacrifices all the time. How many of you, when you wake up at whatever o'clock in the morning, on Monday morning, are excited that you're going to work that day? Even if you love your job, you're probably not excited to go to work in the morning. Yet you do so. Why? Because you're familiar with the concept of sacrifice. You're familiar with saying, I'm going to make an evaluation and it is better for me to have a job than not have a job. Therefore, I'm going to go to work. I know that I might enjoy this one day of just blowing off work, but I will not enjoy not having money in my bank when my mortgage is due next month. And I will especially not enjoy living under a bridge next winter. So you make a sacrifice. You say, I'm looking at a system of priorities. I'm giving up my priorities in order for something that is better. I'm giving up my short-term desires for a long-term goal. And in the Old Testament, that same concept of sacrifice gets applied to the Old Testament religion, the Old Testament faith of the Jews. What do they do? When they sin, they give a sacrifice. Now, when you think about it, in just the next five minutes, what are they better off with? An animal which they can eat or sell or some kind of intangible benefit of knowing that sins are atoned for? Well, for the next five minutes, if I'm hungry, a hamburger sounds better than atonement. Yet, they sacrifice. They recognize as much as I might like to eat or sell this animal, I would like more to have a right relationship with God. And he has commanded me to do this. So in obedience, having weighed my priorities, I know that this is the better choice. I'm going to make a sacrifice right now. I devote this cow to God. I devote this dove to God. In the Old Testament, that sacrifice would then die. Blood must be shed. Blood must be shed for sin. There is no atonement without the shedding of blood. And so in the Old Testament, you take your sacrifice, you'd go to the temple, you'd turn it over to the priest, and in a gory, bloody ceremony, they would execute that animal. Sacrifice is dead, devoted to God. Certainly not a sufficient sacrifice, as the book of Hebrews tells us. The blood of rams and goats can never wash away sins. Yet, it was a sacrifice of obedience, trusting in God to atone for sins. Yet, here in the New Testament, we are given an opportunity to make a different sacrifice. The sacrifice of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is not a sacrifice of dead animals. It is a living sacrifice. Well, what changed between Deuteronomy and Romans 12? What happened in the intervening time that now the sacrifice does not need to be dead? Because it never changed that an atonement must be made with blood. It never changed that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That is a universal truth. It's still true today. 
But what happened in between is that Jesus died. A sacrifice, a once for all, a final atoning sacrifice happens on the cross of Calvary, which we celebrate this week. And so because of that great sacrifice, now the call to Christian sacrifice is very different than the call to Old Testament Jewish sacrifice. A lamb does not need to shed its blood because the lamb has shed its blood. We do not need a dead, bloody sacrifice anymore because we have a once-for-all dead, bloody sacrifice in Christ, which now lives. And so now, after the cross, through the gospel, based on the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, we now present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It is a privilege, it is a blessing that the sacrifice of the New Testament is one that is alive because we already died with Christ. We're already dead in Christ and raised to walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6. So the sacrifice today is a living sacrifice. Still a sacrifice. Still given up, but it's not given up dead. So our lives, if we have been crucified with Christ and raised again to walk in newness of life, if we have experienced that, now our lives, which we are living, are sacrifices. What does that mean? It means it's not mine. It's been given over. I've been united with Christ. My life is not my own. This week, we had 12 people come and look at our house and want to buy it. It was a pain in the neck. Uh, we, we lived at restaurants because uh, they always came at supper time. Uh, so we, we had uh, a challenging week, yet thankfully, in God's grace, we got several offers on our house, and we even had got to pick and counter and all that stuff, and it was, it was, it was good. Yet in a couple months, they're going to take ownership of my house, and when they take ownership of my house, they're going to want all of the keys to my house. They don't want me to stop by for a visit in the fall. They don't want me to come back in and unlock the door and, and just walk into the house and say, good, it's good to be back home when all their stuff and their decorations and their people are in the house. It's not mine. I give it up. Right now, I have claim to my house. I can do things to my house. Now, they might endanger the sale contract, but I can do things to my house right now because it's mine. But when that closing date comes around, I have to turn over my keys and I give it to them and it is not my house. If I want to paint a room fuchsia, I can paint a room fuchsia now, but I better not come in in June and paint that same room fuchsia. It's not my house anymore. I gave it up. And so here in Romans chapter 12, we are told to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. Give them up. It's not yours anymore. You don't have ownership. You don't get to paint your house fuchsia anymore. You are someone else's. You do not belong to yourself anymore. As we go on in the verse, it describes that living sacrifice. It is holy and acceptable to God. In fact, living, holy, and acceptable are actually listed in parallel. Most of the time we, we translate it this way, but they're, they're equal. We're living, holy, and acceptable to God. If we are dead in Christ, that our life before Christ is not acceptable to God. Our life before Christ is offensive to God. But now, as we have been crucified with Christ, as we have been buried and raised again in newness of life, now this new life we have is acceptable and holy 
It's worth giving to God because it is a life purchased by Christ because we are united with Christ. So really, when we give our lives as a living sacrifice to God, we are giving the very righteousness of Christ as a living sacrifice to God because we have been united with him. And therefore, our service to God, following our conversion, following our death with Christ, our service to God is good and it is acceptable. This is our spiritual worship. That word spiritual there, usually in the New Testament, the word for spiritual is going to be something in the pneuma family, P-N-E-U-M-A, which you might know from pneumonia. Um, that's referring to the spirit, okay? That's what we call the spirit is a pneuma, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. This text, it is not pneuma, it's a different word. It's actually logikos. It is a word that carries with it a connotation of the spiritual, but also a connotation of the rational. And there's some debate about which side to translate that word towards. Do we lean towards the rational? That's what the King James did when it translates it, your reasonable service. Or do we lean towards the spiritual element, your spiritual service? The reality is both are included here. Both are included that this is a spiritual service, but it is also a reasonable service. It is a rational service because what makes more sense when someone has given their life for you that you owe your life back to them? It is reasonable. It's a spiritual service. And so you who are dead with Christ and alive with Christ, who walk in newness of life, your life is not your own and that's perfectly reasonable. It makes sense. You owe him a debt, a debt that you cannot pay, but a debt nonetheless. If you are a recipient of the mercy of God, you are not your own. Present yourself to God. Present your talents to God. It's going to be developed as we go through this text. Present your time to God. How are we using our time are we using our time as if our time is owned by someone else or are we willing to rent out a portion of it to him? Are we giving ourselves as reasonable sacrifice? You need to give your lifestyle, the decisions you make for how you live that must be a sacrifice to God. Your loyalty, everything that you have does not belong to you. You have been bought with the price. You are not your own. You have been crucified with Christ. It is not you that lives anymore. It's he that lives within you. So you owe him everything. So we must sacrifice because the gospel demands our sacrifice. We also must stand out because the gospel demands our sacrifice. Verse number two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be mixed in. Don't be blended in with the world. Instead, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And so when we look at that whole argument, we can kind of get an idea. What does it look like to be conformed to the image of the world? It has less to do with how we look and more to do with how we think. Because the opposite of being conformed to the world is having our minds being renewed and being transformed. 
Most of my life, when I heard this text, I thought be not conformed to the world primarily had to do with what you wore, what you listened to, and what you watched. And that is certainly part of it. But there is so much more. If you are not going to be conformed to the world, you will think differently than the world around you thinks. Someone who is transformed by the renewing of their mind is going to look at their entire life from a different perspective. Yet all around us, every day of the week, we have all these inputs coming in saying, think this way, think this way, think this way, think this way. Every advertisement is a call for us to think differently than we think now. Think about using this deodorant instead of that deodorant. Think about eating this instead of that. They're all trying to change our mind. The world is focused on the way that we think. How in the world? I'm only 33 years old. How in the world? In my 30 years, has the world transformed its view of gender and sexual relationships as much as it had? In my 33 years, that's to say nothing of you old people who were alive in the 70s. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's to say nothing of those who lived through the 60s, right? We have seen the world transform. How has it transformed? It's not transformed by legislation. That's just a symptom. The world is transformed when its thinking is transformed. The world has changed the way it views the person. What is the final standard of sexual morality in the world today? There is one. It's consent. It's what I want. I am the master. That is our worldview of sexuality, and it permeates our lives. We get it all the time. Our worldview of work, our worldview of money, our worldview of family, our worldview of success, our worldview of everything is coming at us. And what does Paul call us to do? Renew your minds. The battle against worldliness is not a battle of behavior, it's a battle of thought. Thought will affect our behavior, but it starts in the mind. Is my mind being renewed? Is my mind turning to what Christ has taught me? Is my mind looking at his word? I must be transformed from worldliness by the renewing of my mind. Why? So that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is? Change the way you think. That's how you find out. You want to know what God wants? Think in a godly fashion. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will change not just what he gives you, but also what you desire. Delight yourself in the Lord. He's going to meet your needs. He's going to change the needs because you find your delight in him. We must be transformed. We must be changed. Change your way of thinking. Primarily in America today, this stop being so self-centered. Stop being an individual. The individual is the God of modern Western society. What I want, what I feel, what I think, what I prefer, the individual is the center of our society. But the gospel calls us to turn away from ourselves, to instead look at the one who is sacrificed for us and sacrifice in return. I am not my own. This is going to affect us in every area of life. If we change our way of thinking to be like Christ, it's going to affect us when we suffer. When we suffer, we're not going to think about how miserable the suffering is, how unfair the suffering is. Instead, we'll think, I know that God is good because I know that he suffered for me. 
I know that suffering is within his good, sovereign, perfect, righteous plan. And so when my mind is renewed, when I think with the gospel at heart, when I think of what God wants and I suffer, I can suffer well. When I think with the gospel at heart, when my mind is renewed and I succeed, I succeed well because I know that this too is a gift from God. I know that it's not ultimately about my personal success. I know that, that my success cannot be an idol, that my success ultimately does not give me any credit before God. That's completely established in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. And so the gospel allows me to succeed well. The gospel allows me to get a promotion at work well. The gospel allows me to schedule my time well. The gospel allows me to choose what risks I should take well because it is a change in the way that I think so that when I am presented with a problem, my whole approach is changed. My whole approach to my life is different when it is informed by the fact that I am not my own, but I am bought with a price. That my righteousnesses are as filthy rags, but Christ has been righteous in my place. When those facts, those foundational beliefs about who I am are altered by the gospel, my behavior, my decision making is also altered by the gospel. I'm not conformed to this world. I find out what the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God is. And what a reassurance that the description he uses for the will of God is not the bad, awful, and miserable will of God. No, we are promised that we will know the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God is. Do you want to know what God's will is? Think like God thinks. Repent of the way that you have been enculturated to think and think the way that God thinks. When God reveals his will, it's unlikely he's going to write it to us in a message in the sky. It's unlikely that we're going to have a concrete vision from God. And it's unlikely that we're going to have something show up in our mailbox that tells us what to do. If we want to know the will of God, we must think the way God thinks. As a church, we're at a point in time where finding out the will of God is incredibly important. Finding out the will of God is incredibly important for this church. As we look for a pastor, as, as this church moves into the future, you must be thinking the way God would think. This is true when choosing a pastor. It is true when choosing whether to accept a promotion at work. It is true when deciding what to do with our time. It is true when it's deciding how to parent our children. We must think the way God thinks. And then we will see God's good perfect and acceptable will. Back in the 90s, Apple computer was on the verge of bankruptcy. And Steve Jobs makes his triumphant return when his company Next is acquired. He comes in and their first big ad campaign was called Think Different. Think Different. You might remember the commercials. They'd show pictures of famous thinkers throughout history as this message was being read behind them. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules. They have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They invent, they imagine, they heal, they explore, they create, they inspire, they push the human race forward. 
Maybe they have to be crazy. How else can you stare at an empty canvas and see a work of art or sit in silence and hear a song that's never been written or gaze at a red planet and see a laboratory on wheels? We make tools for these kinds of people. While some see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Our world likes to claim that it likes those who think different. Yet, there is an incredible pressure for us all to think the same. Romans chapter 12, verse number 2, urges us, think different. Have your mind renewed so that you can know God's will. You will look different from the world because you will be oriented vertically towards God. You will see that your whole, whole life is lived before God. That he is the one who is watching and when you are made aware of the gospel, you will see how it permeates your life. And then that vertical orientation where you see you walk before God will affect all of your horizontal relationships because you're thinking differently. So your neighbor is not just a, a pain in your neck because of how they handle their lawn or because of all the junk in their yard or because of how loud they are. You will look at your neighbor and you will see someone who bears the image of God. You will see someone who is purchased with the blood of Christ. And so, when you look to your neighbor, you'll see them differently because you're thinking differently. Your orientation has changed. You're thinking before God. Someone who thinks different will forgo comfort, promotion, security, recreation, financial stability, the opinions of their peers, in order to be a pleasing sacrifice to the Savior who sacrificed so much for them. If you live before God as a sacrifice, your whole life is going to be changed. Then Paul goes on in this next section to put some meat on these bones. He talks about the concept of sacrifice. He talks about the way that we're supposed to live. But then he gets practical. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Okay, so who's he talking to here? Everyone among you. Everyone who is a part of the church at Rome. He's talking about church ministry. Everyone among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment and each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So what does the renewed mind look like? What happens when the gospel is at work? It affects how we live in all of life, but it affects especially how we live in the body of Christ. His first call is don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. Most of the times when I've heard this text preached, also the 1 Corinthians 12 text that we, we already read this morning, most of the time the emphasis is on not thinking too highly of your own gifts so that you don't use your own gifts, you don't lord your own gifts over one another. And just be real frank with this church, that's not really a problem that we have here. I've never seen it happen. It's not been an issue in this church. However, I do think the opposite issue is at play in our church. Not thinking too highly of yourself may require you to use the gifts that God has given you. 
Notice that in this text, he doesn't build off not thinking highly to minimize the gifts. When he talks about leadership, he says, lead with zeal. I think too often we hear, don't think too highly of yourself, therefore don't lead with zeal. Because that would be thinking highly of yourself. That flies in the face of the intent of this text. This text is urging us to use our gifts in the church, to be faithful, to be engaged, to live as a living sacrifice given over to God, particularly in the context of our relationships with the body of Christ. Life in the modern world demands much from us. Right? Living today is very busy. We work, and work, of course, always expects you to only work 40 hours a week and never do anything extra, right? No, we work, and the demands of our work are incredible. The demands of our work leave the office with us. We have to deal with life. We have to maintain our house. It has to be clean. It has to be mowed. It has to be shoveled. All the stuff that takes time. We have errands to run, and then you go to the DMV, and they take forever, and so your errand to the DMV takes longer than it even needed to, and then you go to this place, and they send you to that place because they can't help you, and you're running all around, and before long, you waste an entire day on some stupid little piece of paperwork. We have to maintain our health, whether that's diet and exercise or uh, simply eating food or going to the doctor. All these things make demands on our time. We have family stuff. We want to spend time together. We want to take vacations together. Uh, we want to make sure our children get the right amount of sleep. We want our children to be involved in sports. We have all these different demands on our life. And sometimes it feels like you're juggling half a dozen chainsaws just to try and survive. Sometimes you just feel like you can't keep up. Yet that doesn't excuse us from Romans chapter 12. Our life is a living sacrifice. My life is not my own. And it's my concern in our church and the church in general that we have these big life priorities. Work, family, just the stuff that needs to get done, and church. We have all of these priorities and we're trying to balance them. And you know what the easiest one of those four priorities is to leave behind? Every time. It's church. It's the easiest one. It's the one that you can get out of. You can even give a spiritual sounding excuse and then it sounds like you're being more godly. Yet, in this text, the way that being a living sacrifice is demonstrated is by serving Christ in the church by using our gifts in the body of Christ. As far as I know, this person is not a Christian. She's writing in the street journal. This is convicting, and I'd urge every person in this church, particularly as we're thinking about nominations for the transition team, about taking responsibilities that are going to take some of our time over the next few months. This is Laura Vanderkam. Instead of saying, I don't have time, Try saying it's not a priority. See how that feels. Often that's a perfectly adequate explanation. I have time to iron my sheets. I just don't want to. But other things are harder. Try it. I'm not going to edit your resume, sweetie, because it's not a priority. I don't go to the doctor because my health is not a priority. If these phrases don't sit well, that's the point. Changing our language reminds us that the time is a choice. If we don't like how we're spending an hour, we can choose differently. So let me urge you, think that way. 
Instead of, I don't have time to go to small group, it's not a priority for me to go to small group. Hopefully, that might strike you a little differently than I don't have time. I don't have time to take an active role in searching for a pastor. It's not a priority for me to take an active role in searching for a pastor. You're saying the same thing either way, just one you're being honest with yourself and the other one you're not. Your life is a living sacrifice. And that sacrifice is a reflection on another sacrifice that was made for you that wasn't a living sacrifice. It was a dying sacrifice. Jesus died for you. He purchased you. You are not your own. So as you evaluate your schedule, have the honesty to evaluate it as priorities. We have time for the things that are priorities. And that doesn't mean that the church should be a 40-hour-a-week deal. It doesn't mean that we should have activities every night that everyone needs to feel obligated to be at. But it does mean that occasionally when there's a tiebreaker, the church should win. More than occasionally, probably. Your participation in this body is a reflection on your view of the gospel. Because the gospel has purchased the people that you are here with. And serving in this church serves other people. It's good for you, certainly, but it also serves other people. How many times has there been a small group discussion where someone was struggling with something that you've struggled with yourself and you weren't there because you were too busy? Was it worth it? Let's be honest. We're making value decisions. We're making priority decisions. And sometimes that's going to mean not going to small group. Certainly. Small group is not a biblically mandated thing. Yet, let's be honest about what we're deciding. It's not a priority to me. Your participation in this body shows how you view the gospel. You participate in giving. You participate in time. You participate in your investment and relationships with other people in this body. All of those things show how important you think the gospel is. Because if the gospel is so important for you that you're willing to be awkward, you're going to have conversations with people who are hard to have conversations with. If the gospel is so important that you're willing to sacrifice your time, you're going to do things when you would rather sit at home or when you'd rather do something else because it serves Christ and his church. If the gospel is important to you, you're going to be giving with your financial resources because you know that serves the church of Christ as it serves others who have been bought by Christ, who are loved by him. When you do not participate in the life of this body, in the life of a church body, you are robbing yourself of the means God has given for your sanctification, but you are even more significantly robbing others of the means God has given for their sanctification through their relationship with you. The amount the church demands is limited, but don't abuse that. If you believe the gospel you will recognize that the one percent of your week that is our Sunday morning service does not constitute itself as a living sacrifice. If you view your participation in the body of Christ as something that happens between 10.30 and 12 o'clock on Sunday morning, that is literally less than one percent of your schedule. That is not being a living sacrifice. Give yourself to other people through the church. Be involved as much as you can 
There are things that are not required, that are not biblical mandates, things like small group, things like Sunday school, things like uh, meeting for coffee, things like the Friday morning prayer meeting. These are not all required, and I don't want to create a new law that says they're all required. However, be honest about priorities. Is the way that you schedule your week a reflection that you are a living sacrifice or a reflection that you're paying rent? Which one is it? Actively pursue meaningful relationships in the church. In our Wednesday night small group, we've been going through instruments in the Redeemer's hands. There is a, a particularly helpful term that he used this week to refer to our relationships. He called them terminally casual. Terminally casual. We will build a relationship with someone that revolves around the five minutes of things we can have in common on Sunday morning, but we're not going to ask the next question. We're not going to ask the why. We're not going to try and get to the heart of what's going on and the people who we go to church with. Actively pursue meaningful relationships. Volunteer when there are needs. On the side table, there's a bunch of nomination forms. There's also a sign-up sheet where I tried this week to the best of my ability to think of all the things that I do and put a sign-up sheet out so that someone else can step up and say, I'm going to do that when Jeremy leaves. And I hope it would be great if I don't have to try and shake bushes and come to you and be like, please, can someone do this job? Step up. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Be a part of this body. Utilize the gifts that God has given you. We need the people of this church always, but more than ever in the next six months or a year, to present their bodies as a living sacrifice to this body. We must function as a body. He uses that body metaphor here, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same functions, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The metaphor that Paul uses, both here and in 1 Corinthians 12, for the church is that of a body. He does not use the metaphor of an egg carton, where you just have a bunch of slots and you plug in and then you can take them out when you need to. The body is attached. I dare you tomorrow to try and leave your left hand at home. Just see how it works. It doesn't work well. Try going to work and saying, you know what, and I don't think anyone has a prosthetic leg, but uh, you know what, I'm just going to leave my leg at home for today. I don't need it today. No, that's not how a body works. And Paul, when he uses this metaphor under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knows what metaphor he's using. He knows that my left shoulder is attached to my right knee. Even though they have very little to do with each other, I can't have one without the other. I need the body which is stuck together and fit together. The gifts to the church aren't a value meal where you've got the fries over here and the sandwich over here and the drink over here. It is a body. It is all mashed together. It is inseparable. And right now, our church more than ever needs that attitude. Our church desperately needs it. I've talked to people. I've talked to people over the past few weeks. I've heard the fears and the concerns that people in our church have. We need to do this. We need to love each other. We need to invest in each other. We need to be a body together that takes seriously what's happening in the rest of the body. When my knee hurts, I don't just ignore it in my brain. It doesn't work that way. It's all attached to each other. We need one another. 
We are a body. We must function together. Instead of noticing what's wrong with the body, we ought to step up and fix what's wrong with the body. I'm not talking about any one person in particular, because I've heard it from so many people. I've heard, you know, Jeremy, I'm really concerned with you leaving. I'm concerned that no one's going to step up and take leadership. That's been said to me by at least six, ten people. No one has said to me, Jeremy, I'm concerned. How can I step up and take leadership? I get it. I, I understand why we're nervous about it. And everyone can hear this and say, yeah, we really need people to step up and take leadership. So step up and take leadership. I love this church. Love this church so much. And I want to see this church thriving and growing. But if I'm being honest, if I'm looking back at my ministry here and there's one thing that I say, God, I don't know what to do. This is it. This is it. We need to step up. We need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, putting it on the line for one another. Because if we don't have a pastor in this church, it's going to hurt people in this church. So it's going to require wisdom. It's going to require hard work. It's going to require sacrifice, real, genuine sacrifice. If we have a bad pastor in this church, it's going to hurt people in this church. So it's going to require sacrifice. Church, I love you. Christ loves you even more than I love you. The future of this church hangs on whether we stop acting like a carton of eggs and start acting like a body that needs each other, that is living as a sacrifice, knowing that we are not our own. We're going to partake of communion. That should be a strong reminder. We are one body because of the shed blood and broken body of Christ. We are united together because we partake together of the body and blood of Christ. Here, symbolically, but in our salvation spiritually, we are partakers of Christ together. We are owned. This church was sacrificed for. Will it sacrifice back? Will it present itself as a living sacrifice? Praise God, we don't need to present ourselves as dead sacrifices. Praise God, there's no altar we need to go to and cut our wrists and throw ourselves on it and light it on fire. That's not how Christianity works. Yet, the demand is even higher. We are not our own. Change your mindset. Stop thinking like the world thinks about your individual self. Stop thinking the way the world thinks about your needs and think the way God thinks. How does God think about his needs? He thinks, I'm going to become a man. I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be a baby. I'm going to be, need to be held. I'm going to need to be fed. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be despised. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. That's how God thinks about sacrifice. How do we think about sacrifice?